0: So this is the concluding um, seminar in the series of six that we've been listening to and over the last week. And so in some ways I want to try to draw some of these threads together that I've launched. And to begin with I'd like to single out another metaphor that I think is one that's rather central to the Buddha's teaching and that is the metaphor of the stream now we already came across it when in the passage where the Buddha describes his awakening to um, the this conditioned conditioned arising he said that this goes against the stream that what he had discovered went against the stream and in this case the stream refers to what is sometimes called in the Pali texts uh, the Mara Sota, the stream of Mara the stream against which uh, this path somehow goes against but curiously the Buddha also uses the same word, sota, stream, to describe the path itself. And he talks about sotapati, stream entry. So we have this double metaphor, entering a stream that goes against the stream. Now we've looked already at The idea of what it is we go against, and that is the stream of um, conditioned or programmed uh, reactivity, behavior, habit, might also include psychological, social conditioning. It's that which we somehow come up against very often when we're trying to, to still the mind in meditation, to become more clear and aware and yet despite our deepest intentions we find that our whole body-mind in some senses seems to be rebelling against that intention. And Rather than become still and quiet we find ourselves becoming agitated, restless, distracted and so on. And it's often only when you go against the stream of these habits that you really begin to notice it. You begin to see what you are somehow up against. And this can be immensely frustrating, as some of you might have discovered. Because it seems such a simple thing to do, to just watch your breath, sit still, notice what's occurring, and yet it triggers this rebellion and the rebellion I think is really just another way of describing what we're kind of up against all the time except for much of the time we're not up against it but we're going with it. It's as though for example if we take this metaphor one step further that we have spent our lives swimming in a river and swimming with the current, going downstream. It's very easy. Uh, the, the the, uh, the, the, The whole body of the river is carrying us along. So we might make a few strokes with our arms and our legs, and we make this extraordinary progress. But if we get to a point where we decide we don't particularly want to just go with this, this flood of conditions but actually to return to the source and to swim upstream then of course we find ourselves in a very different situation we have to make a lot more effort and sometimes we still make negative progress we find ourselves still going back rather than forward and not only that but it's, it's uncomfortable we find that what is in the river, the wavelets, the, um, the detritus that's floating around on the top, is all slapping into our faces. So it's hard work, it's uncomfortable, and it's often a struggle. And I think the experience of meditation, particularly when we're uh, embarking on this practice, often feels like this. It feels as though we're going against something that has an enormous force. So the idea of, of entering the stream is in a sense about embarking on a counter-current, a counter-culture, a current that is going against the flow of what our our habits, our, our conditioning. Uh, are somehow pushing us to do. We're going against that now. And that can, of course, be exhilarating. It can be a journey of discovery. It might be far more meaningful to us, but that's not to underestimate the amount of effort and work that might be involved. The Buddha says in in some of the passages concerning Mara that there is no force as powerful in this world as the force of Mara. So we shouldn't think that if we just do a few meditation retreats and read a couple of Dharma books we will sort this out. We're embarking on something that will continue to have an element of uh, difficulty Uh, probably as long as we're doing this practice. I hope that diminishes, of course, and I think over time it does. But nonetheless, it's still something that we have to work against. So, entering the stream, first of all, we need to understand what exactly the Buddha means when he says, entering the stream. And there's a passage. I think it's in your handout, where he's talking to, or he's asking his disciple Sariputta. He says, "Sariputta, this is said, the stream, the stream. Now, what, Sariputta, is the stream?" And Sariputta answers, "The noble eightfold path, venerable sir. That is the stream. That is." Appropriate seeing, thinking, speaking, acting, and so on. And then the Buddha says, but Sariputta, we also say, a stream-enterer, a stream-enterer. What now, Sariputta, is a stream-enterer? And Sariputta replies, one who possesses this noble Eightfold Path, Venerable Sir, is called a stream-enterer possesses in other words someone a person who somehow has made this path their own that's the the point i think that's being made here it's no longer that this eightfold path is something that is being taught by the buddha and you do your best to try to approximate your life to it but you have actually embraced this way of life and have made it your own. In fact, one of the, one of the f- terms the Buddha uses to describe a person who has entered the stream is one who is, has become, um, in fact, this is the actual phrase, I don't know if it's in your text. This is someone who has gone beyond doubt, become free from perplexity, gained intrepidity and become independent of others in my teaching become independent of others in other words this practice is now your own you have assumed responsibility you have taken upon yourself this task and this is what you do now and that that is what it means to enter the stream and again I think we have to once again emphasize that this is not simply a spiritual accomplishment, something that might occur to you in the depths of your meditation one day, but rather you have embarked upon a way of life, a way of life that includes every aspect of your humanity, from the way you see the world and yourself, from the way you think, Reflect, imagine, make choices, have intentions that lead you to speak, communicate in the world with others, to act with your body, to work, to provide for those who are dependent on you, to make use of resources, as well as focusing and uh, channeling your energies, your efforts to what matters most for you, to live with attention and mindfulness, vigilance, concentration all of that is the stream now this perhaps might be a little surprising given the fact that so often in the context of meditation retreats and often within Uh, the whole uh, perspective on Buddhism that we gain from uh, an emphasis or or we we gain from contexts in which the emphasis is about meditation, we think of stream entry as a spiritual attainment. And I think probably many of us have had stream entry defined as... Uh, have as the abandonment of three fetters the abandonment of three fetters three things are abandoned or let go of or dropped when we enter the stream and these are usually described as um, subjective experiences so again there does seem to be rather a normative assumption in Buddhist practice that you arrive at these points of, of, of enlightenment, quote-unquote, by achieving some kind of inner transformation. Now, of course, there is an element that isn't necessarily true in that. But I think very often, we think of, we, when we think of stream entry, we don't think of practicing the Eightfold Path. And yet that's how the Buddha describes it but rather we think of it as some kind of inner transformation, alone. and That I think is something we need to reconsider. I looked high and low in the canon to try to find a passage where the Buddha explicitly defines the three fetters and I did find a passage but only one, there might be others. One would have to look further no doubt but the source is actually quite a, an early one, it's in the Sutta Nipata, it's verse 231 and I have it I think on your handout and here the text says at the, ti- at the, ti- at the same time as his attainment of insight three things become abandoned. The view of individuality, one, doubt, two, and whatever rules of virtuous conduct and vows there may be. Now, again, normally <laughs> we expect to hear at this point attachment to rites and rituals, but that's not what the text says. Uh, Sila um and again in, in the Sutta Nipata it, it says Sila which just means virtue, vows, morality. That goes. In, 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 the, in some other passages in the Pali Canon, it qualifies it as bata paramasa, which means attachment to virtue and vows. But it doesn't suggest explicitly that we're no longer going to be doing fire worshipping or some kind of explicit religious ritual. That is in later interpretation. I'd like to go through each of these three and give them perhaps a slightly different meaning because I want to see what this means in the context of entering the Eightfold Path. So the first one is this idea of, um, uh, it's called in, in Pali, um, Sakaya Diti, um, which we could translate roughly as, as egoism self-centeredness self-centeredness let's say and that is said to fall away first of all we need to just step back for a moment and look at the context within which stream entry is happening we now know that stream entry is the point at which you enter the eightfold path and that is the fourth noble truth in the way I've been interpreting the four truths, that therefore is the culmination of the first truth, the second truth, the third truth, and the fourth truth, the Eightfold Path. So we start with fully embracing and knowing dukkha, our condition in the world, its impermanence, its unsatisfactoriness, its impersonality and opening our minds and our hearts totally to that condition which brings us into the beginnings of wisdom affectively it brings us into a greater empathetic relationship with others in other words not just our own suffering but the suffering of the world and also and I'm not going to dwell on this yet but I know someone's asked about it I think it opens up a new aesthetic. I think the world ceases, when you do this sort of practice, to be flat and opaque and not terribly interesting, boring. And that begins to be worn away once we become more acutely aware of of how rare and how temporary our life on this earth is. It opens up the world, and in doing so, begins to present us with a whole other perspective on life. One that is not driven by satisfying our selfish and egotistic concerns, but one that is concerned with responding to life at a much greater depth which leads to the falling away of craving, or grasping, clinging. We don't simply have any foundation for that, it becomes less and less, until we experience moments in which that craving stops. And that's what I spoke about yesterday, particularly in the example of the garden shed. Something drops away, either suddenly, in a moment of oh wow, or gradually we get used to this perspective and when we realize that we need not live conditioned by greed and hatred and fear when we know that we are free from such things either because they have literally come to a stop momentarily or whether we know or whether we have become independent of them as the Buddha describes in the first sermon it's at those moments that we are able to enter the stream enter the eightfold path so you can see how entering the stream or stream entry is an, an element a key element in the realization of the four truths that's the context in which it occurs And it becomes quite clear at this point that what is crucial is not resting in nirvana, but rather experiencing nirvana as a falling away, as a stopping of certain modes of thought and behavior that opens up another way of living in this world. And this, I think, returns us back to the metaphor the Buddha gave about the Eightfold Path leading to a city, and the city being a symbol of the Four Noble Truths. In other words, we embark on the beginnings of another sort of culture and civilization. So again, trying to see the bigger picture, trying to see that what the Buddha is suggesting in in, in these passages is not just a spiritual liberation, but actually a new way of living in this world. So in what sense is a new way of living in this world achieved by the abandoning of individuality or egoism? It is not a question that at this point we somehow lose our ego, that the self somehow evaporates or disappears but rather what happens is that we realize that the self our identity, me, is not a fixed, reified point or cell that never changes, that resists all change, but rather what we are is a project to be realized. Now this is stated I think rather explicitly in another verse that's in your handout, which is, the, is verse 80 of the Dhammapada, in which the Buddha says, Just as a farmer irrigates his field, just as a fletcher fashions an arrow, just as a carpenter shapes a piece of wood, so the sage tames the self. Now in most translations it would say, so the sage tames himself. But what struck me when I read this in Pali was that the word self was used in the accusative singular. In other words, it was the direct object of the verb. And it's the same word self as in anatta, not self. Here we have the Buddha using the word self, same word, but in a thoroughly positive way. In other words, he's he's saying that the, the, the Pandita, the sage, or the wise person, works with the self. In other words, with what they are, with who they are. With their personhood, with their personality, with their being me. But the difference is that it's not about therefore trying to eliminate or get rid of the self to get to some condition called no-self or emptiness, but rather to transform the self. And the three metaphors the Buddha uses are very clear about this. He compares the self in these metaphors to a field, a barren field that the job of the farmer being to irrigate it in order to enable things to grow an arrow something that is fashioned from different elements built constructed and then is able to fly on an unerring course to a target and a piece of wood that is shaped and formed modeled by a carpenter. Again I think it's also worth bearing in mind that the Buddha's drawing his analogies from observations he has had of people in the working world. These are very concrete analogies and they're also again metaphors which have the richness of metaphor in which we can imagine and associate everything we know about farmers irrigating fields, arrowsmiths making arrows, carpenters working with wood. This is what he sees as the task. So I will understand this um, stream entry as one in which you, for the first time, in a deep and real sense, you see yourself as a task to be realized, as a project to be fulfilled rather than the self as a big problem that we have got to get rid of. Now of course we're not, we are definitely not assuming here that there's anything constant or permanent or fixed about such a self, not at all. In fact it's something that is malleable, fluid, not uh, Uh, defined for all time as being this or that. And we see ourselves, as it were, as something that we, we work with. And the materials that we work with are our bodies, our emotions, our feelings, our perceptions, our minds, our consciousness. These are the raw materials of our practice. And it's here again, I think, that we can see that the practice is something like the practice of an artist who takes materials and somehow transfigures them through his or her imagination in order to realize a certain potential to become someone. Again, the other verse that I've also cited in your handout, which I think is right above, this is from the Sutta Nipata, in which the Buddha redefines what he means by karma by action. He says, by action is one a farmer, by action a craftsman, a merchant, a servant, a thief, a soldier, a priest, a ruler. In other words, karma action, is what defines who you are. In other words, you are not something by some essential quality that you possess which is the view of the of, of 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 the brahmanic tradition remember not only is there a, an eternal atman or self identity deep down at the core of yourself somewhere that's the same as god but also the divine crea- creator brahman has specified what it is your role in society. You're either a priest or you're a nobleman, you're a merchant or you're a worker and that is divinely ordained, that's your duty. In in Brahmanism or Hinduism the word Dharma doesn't mean what it does in Buddhism it means to fulfill your caste duty. So if you look at the Bhagavad Gita this famous text that I'm sure many of us have read We basically have Arjuna, who's a warrior, about to go into battle and have to face members of his own Pandava family and we have Krishna, who is God, basically saying, look Arjuna, don't be a wimp, your duty is to go into battle. I think this is probably an anti-Buddhist text. Uh, and Curiously Buddhists often like it, I don't quite understand why. But um, there are some there are some beautiful passages in it. But nonetheless, the thrust of it is to say this is your duty, this is who you are, Arjuna. Get on with it. Arjuna saying, "No, I don't want to go and kill people." Too bad, mate. You're a warrior. Now the Buddha's doing something completely different here. He's saying, "What you are." is not something that exists in any intrinsic way but what you are is the result of what you do, act. It's what in modern philosophy is sometimes called a performative conception of self. You are the result of your actions. And so your, your social identity, your role in the world, is something that you have the freedom to create. I mean, this is very modern, especially in America, you know, the land of unbegrenzte Möglichkeiten, unbounded possibilities. You can become you, you can become the president. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's an important example, and it's somehow prescient, I think, of what the Buddha is saying that. Um, people can become what they choose to be rather than how society defines them or your psychology defines you also. So we have therefore, uh, and then again just the last verses of that, the last lines of that verse, in this way the wise see karma, action, as it really is. They see conditioned arising and they understand the results of action. And all of this is very much of a whole with the understanding of the Buddha's awakening not being about some state, some deeper truth, but rather about a process. There's something profoundly processual about what the Buddha's teaching, the very notion of the stream. There's nothing more processual than a stream, something that flows endlessly without stopping. We're entering a stream and part of that stream is in fact ourselves. We are a stream. Our bodies, our feelings, our perceptions, these impermanent processes are like a stream. They're free to be modified, modulated, transformed in some way. And this in a way is the task of the Eightfold Path is to irrigate this field, different metaphor, but nonetheless again it suggests water. Irrigation means that you carve channels in a barren piece of land, that you allow water to flow and the flowing of the water is what nourishes the earth so that a crop, can be planted and cultivated and can bear fruit. It's a very rich metaphor. The Buddha seems to be suggesting that much of our, our lives, much of our, our being as individuals is rather barren, like a barren field. And the practice, therefore, whether we are irrigating our lives with mindfulness or concentration or reflection, or ethical action, speech, all of these branches of the Eightfold Path are somehow forms of irrigation in which we're opening up other possibilities in our life in order to, in a sense, nourish the field of our existence. And I don't need to go so much into the other Metaphors which are somewhat self-evident, the arrow, the block of wood, all are about things which start out as just bits and pieces of wood or feather and are then molded, formed, shaped, fashioned in such a way that they begin to achieve a purpose that the individual elements in themselves do not have. We put something together. So I think the, fall, the falling away of, in, of, of what the Buddha calls Sakayaditi, the view of, of ego," is, at, is, in a sense to let go of fixed conceptions of who we are in order that our lives can begin to flourish. So it's not about, again I'm repeating myself, but I think this is an important point to get home. It's not about getting rid of me. It's not about deleting self, but it's about understanding that self is not a thing, but rather a process and a task that can be realized. So that's one thing. Now what's this other thing that the Buddha then speaks of? that falls away at the time of stream entry, and that is whatever rules of virtuous conduct and vows there may be. That's K.R. Norman's very literal translation. It reminds us perhaps of that passage I read out about the Middle Way, in which the Buddha describes the... Um, <clears throat> I don't know if I can find it... Why is it you can never find the passage you're looking for? Remember that passage I read out where he says, those who hold training as the essence or who hold virtue and vow, same word, pure livelihood, celibacy and service as the essence, this is one dead end. It's making this, it's the same point. So what falls away in this experience of stream entry is whatever rules of virtuous and vows virtuous conduct and vows there may be. Now, again, I don't at all want to suggest that at this point you abandon morality. That's clearly not the idea. But it does require going beyond a certain conception of what it means to be good, a certain sense of what it means to be moral. And I think what the Buddha's critiquing here is what in, um, in, in ethical theory is sometimes called legalism. Legalism is this uh, view that uh, what is good and right has been defined or revealed by let's say God to Moses on, in the tablets of stone or inscribed in the Quran or has been Uh, written down in the rules of the Vinaya by the Buddha, that's what means to be virtuous, precepts basically. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. And so if we have a legalistic relationship to ethics, when we encounter a difficult moral choice, our first recourse is to somehow look up the answer in the good book What do I do now? Okay, I'm a Buddhist, it says don't kill. Right, we don't kill. Don't lie, etc., etc. Now, as a broad guideline, I think that's, of course, very helpful. But in dealing with ambiguous, specific instances of moral choice, it's often inadequate. Moral dilemmas, which we are probably all very familiar with, do not lend themselves to simplistic, legalistic answers. The the, 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 the opposite extreme of legalism is called antinomianism, meaning there's no rules at all. You just do your own thing. That morality is a form of, 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 uh, of imprisonment. Of control and we need to get rid of it and really just respond to situations as we feel fit. But that of course is just a recipe for selfishness and anarchy. So is there a middle way? One middle way which I think is what the Buddha is possibly getting at here, remember remember the middle way in ethics is certainly something he's referred to in that last, in the passage I cited before, is what in, 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 in Christian ethics is called situational ethics. Situational ethics. In other words, the question that arises when you're confronted with a moral dilemma is not what is the right thing to do, but what is the most loving thing to do? What is the most compassionate thing to do? Let's take for example um, I mean a good example which is very much an issue in this culture is the question of abortion now a strict legalistic Buddhist ethical position would be abortion is killing therefore it's wrong end of story Buddhists are against abortion and there'll be many Buddhists who will make that point it's killing it's equivalent to murder you can't do it now that i feel i think for many of us is too legalistic it's not really taking into account the specific case of let's say a woman who may have been raped who may have um, uh, 10 children and live in poverty or any number of other uh, uh, conditions and circumstances that render this particular case very problematic and not suited to a simple legalistic yes or no, right or wrong answer. The question that presents itself here is in this situation, what is the appropriate thing to do? What is the wisest and most loving response? And that is not something that can be determined in advance We can certainly try to operate within the guidelines of the precepts, but that doesn't mean we have a legalistic obligation to always do one thing. Now you find both in Christianity and in Buddhism um, a move away from legalism towards this situationalism. I mean in the Christian Gospels it's quite clear that Jesus rejects the legalism of the the, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Torah which pretends to have an answer for every legal every moral choice and introduces what he calls the rule or the law of agape love or benevolence and you find the same struggle in Buddhism too between um, well in later Buddhism between the legalism of the monastic rule determining everything and then the Mahayana vision of an ethic that is founded upon compassion I feel that that got lost somewhere along the way I think it's already implicit here I think compassion is implicit in the first noble truth in fully knowing dukkha and I think it's implicit here where the Buddha says when you enter the stream you are no longer living an ethical life which is determined by rules, but rather by your sensitivity, your compassion, your understanding of specific moral cases that are always going to be unique and unprecedented, for which there can never be an overriding a priori answer. So again, when the, 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 this entering the stream, entering a life of process, acknowledging ambiguity, impermanence, uh, unpredictability, being constantly on the cusp of having to make difficult decisions and choices, becoming independent of others in the Buddha's teaching, another characteristic of entering this stream, again suggests that you're on your own, in so many instances of your moral life. And that's the challenge. Not to simply slavishly follow the rule book. And the third thing that falls away is doubt. Now again, I don't think this means doubt in every single instance of how we might use the word doubt, but rather doubt in the sense that you no longer have any any real uncertainty about the validity of what you're doing on this path. You have made a commitment. The the, the, the value of this practice, the value of this way of life is no longer something that you really doubt. You may have moments of uncertainty. You may question yourself at times, and that's probably a good thing. But deep down, you've somehow re oriented your life to a different set of principles and values and when the Buddha comes to describe stream entry in the the Nikaya the Sangyutta Nikaya is the what is described as the the connected discourses of the Buddha two volumes two thick fat volumes lots of repetition difficult to read But the last two sections deal with stream entry and the Four Noble Truths. And those two sections, I would strongly recommend that you read. A lot of my citations have come from them. And again, it's the same sequence. Stream entry, in other words, entering the Eightfold Path, immediately precedes the Four Noble Truths. The same pattern as with the city, the path in the forest leads to the city, the Eightfold Path, leads to the four noble truths this becomes a kind of a a keynote that runs through the canon so when the buddha describes stream entry in this long series of short discourses it's the single most sustained account of stream entry oddly he never defines those three fetters he mentions, I think, in a few cases, has gone beyond the three fetters, but he doesn't say what they are. What he does emphasize, and this is, I'll read out the text, uh, you have it uh, in your handout. Monks, a noble disciple who possesses four things as a stream-enterer, no longer bound to the netherworld, which means in the multi-life view of ancient India, the life as an animal or as a ghost or as a hell-being. Fixed in destiny, in other words, at this point your life is somehow um, committed to the realization of this path and its goals, with awakening as one's destination. And what are these four things? I'm not going to read out the whole passage, but just the key bit. Here monks, a noble disciple possesses confirmed confidence in the Buddha, one. Confirmed confidence in the Dhamma, two. Confirmed confidence in the Sangha, three. And he possesses the virtues dear to the noble ones, unbroken, untorn, unblemished, unmottled, freeing, praised by the wise, ungrasped, leading to concentration. In other words, leading to the eighth step of the eightfold path. Now here, again, this might come as a bit of a surprise and this passage is repeated endlessly throughout this whole section. Here the Buddha is defining stream entry as what we normally call taking refuge. Now it's quite likely that for many of us taking refuge has been presented as basically signing up to the Buddhist club or becoming a Buddhist. In other words, you you, take, you, you, you have the, the Buddha, Saranangachami, Dhammang Saranangachami, Sangang, saranangachami. Bingo, I'm a Buddhist." <laughs> but this is fairly superficial. And clearly you can take that formula, you can recite that formula for any number, number of reasons, because you're born in a Buddhist family. It's like confirmation or bar mitzvah. That's often how it works or you go to a Buddhist center in the West and after a certain amount of time you want to sort of officially become part of the Sangha or the community and so you take these vows and that's good obviously uh, if you think Buddhism is a good thing but here the Buddha seems to be somehow making it rather more significant. The taking of refuge is here now seen as what it means to enter the stream Now I think we've seen enough already to realize that we won't enter the stream just by reciting the refuge formulae. There's more to it than that. But what it means is that when you, uh, in the depths of yourself, begin to realize that you're no longer going to live your life primarily dominated by your desires and your fears and your aversions and your selfishness when you really have committed yourself to leave behind that way of life even though of course none of us are perfect it's going to keep resurfacing nonetheless you have reached a core commitment that you're going to now on try to live with in buddhist language awakening as your goal to try to live a life that is seeking as much as one can to be more awake, to be more wise, to be more open, to be more caring, which is symbolized in the figure of the Buddha, to embark on the Dhamma, which is not just the practice of meditation, although that's part of it, but to embark on the entirety of this eightfold path, to commit yourself to this path and also to commit yourself to um, a community that supports you in this endeavour and this way of life which is called the Sangha. And the Sangha again doesn't refer to the monks and the nuns but it refers to anybody who has entered the stream and who can somehow support you and provide a Uh, a context, uh, a framework that you might meet regularly, you might have developed, cultivate relationships that are based on these common interests. That is what supports you in your practice. So we have, I I think, if we try to step back now and just look at how these passages all hang together, namely these sections from the canon that I've been selectively commenting on, um, we see a picture that is less and less to do with internal private spiritual accomplishment, but has to do with the entirety of our relationship to to the world itself. That uh, the practice, um, in the deeper sense, does not reduce to being good at mindfulness or concentration. But we also must be careful and not feel, well, in that case, those things aren't so important. They are. If we think of the metaphor which has been the symbol of Buddhism for pretty much its entire history, that of the, the, the Dharma Chakra, the Dharma Wheel, there are eight spokes in the Dharma Wheel, of course, they can symbolize these eight aspects of the, noble, of the Eightfold Path, but I think also the image of the wheel is itself telling. Let's imagine that, and I'm willing, quite willing, I think, to make this point, that the, the hub of the wheel is in fact mindfulness and concentration. But if the hub of a wheel is, exists in isolation from the spokes and the rim, It's useless. I think the wheel is a symbol of integrity, a symbol of completeness. In fact, the very word sama we find in sammadhiti, which I've translated here as appropriate seeing. The word sama means something like complete, complete view, complete seeing. Unfortunately, it's usually translated as right as opposed to wrong, which gives it an immediately moralistic connotation. Whereas the word itself, I think, suggests more like completeness. So the Eightfold Path is is, is suggestive of a kind of integrity. Remember, integrity comes from the word integer, which means a whole number. Integral means to be complete, to be to to live a life in which all of the elements of our existence and our experience are somehow working together. We're not split in any way. The the whole organism, our life, our work, are channeled towards the realization of, of a single way of life, a single goal. So what I'm suggesting is that we need to reconsider the practice of the Dharma as in equally engaging all of these elements and not privileging one or two of them over the others that our livelihood, our speech, our thinking are just as important to the realization of the Eightfold Path as our or as is our proficiency in meditation I, th- I fully understand that in our culture since we're not raised in a way in which meditation or mindfulness are given any great value they're not singled out as things we need to be educated in then of course there is an important uh, need to become more familiar and more uh, uh, accomplished in these areas but the danger is they become the defining qualities of what constitutes being good at our practice or being closer to enlightenment i think this also reflects a long history of a monastic bias where monks and nuns in secluded monasteries have developed these aspects perhaps more than the others of the Eightfold Path in their lives but if we go back to the beginning if we consider what this practice means for us who are not monks and nuns but lay people living in the world, acting in the world with social and moral obligations to our society then I think we need perhaps to restore the Eightfold Path in its integrity, that each element is as important as any other. There's a striking passage, which um, I've also included in your handout, concerning a man called Sarakani the Sakyan. Now Sarakani the Sakyan, as we'll see, is not the sort of person we might consider to be the perfect Buddhist now on that occasion, the text says, Sarakani the Sakyan had died and the Buddha had declared him to be a stream-enterer, no longer bound to the nether- netherworld, etc. Thereupon, a number of Sakyans deplored this and they said, oh, wonderful, wonderful. Now who won't be a stream-enterer when the Buddha has declared Sarakani to be a stream-enterer Sarakani the Sakin was too weak for the training, he drank intoxicating drinks. He was the town drunk. Now this is a very striking passage because it's very difficult to see in whose interest it would have been to have added this passage later. the, if, if we have passages which say that this, you know, this noble moral monk has become a stream enterer, that's the sort of thing we expect to read. Here we have a passage where a, where the town drunk is regarded as a stream enterer. Now this has got a strong, for us at least, uh, a Christian flavour. This is the sinner, but the sinner is also a stream enterer. And when this was reported to the Buddha that the Sakyans were complaining that the Buddha had said that this person was a stream entrant. The Buddha replies, if if one speaking rightly were to say of anyone, he was a lay follower who had gone for refuge over a long time to the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha, which is how he defines stream entry, it is of Sarakani the Sakyan that one could rightly say this. This is a passage I think that I think, for me at least, has caused a great deal of reflection. What does that mean? I think what it means is that stream entry is not something that exists in some rarefied realm of spiritual attainment, that you have to do endless retreats, preferably as a monk or a nun, accomplish all of these levels of insight and samadhi and jhanas and then maybe one day you'll become a stream entrant here we have an example that completely goes against that assumption here we have an example of someone who does not seem to live up to even the most basic kind of moral requirements and yet the Buddha says if one speaking rightly were to say of anyone that he is a stream enterer, that could be said of Sarakani the Sakya. In other words, stream-entry is not about perfection. It's not about achieving some sort of um, high-elevated spiritual attainment from which one never falls back. The Buddha recognizes that his community, his Sangha, is a community of all people, of all people with their weaknesses, with their failings, but nonetheless are able in in their heart of hearts to commit themselves to another way of living in this world. And in a sense, the Sangha exists not just for the enlightened but it exists for those who struggle, for those who have great difficulty in their lives, those who keep slipping back and failing. They are equally worthy of refuge. Remember, Sarakani the drunk, as a stream entrant, is a member of the Sangha, as the Buddha defines it, and therefore is an object of refuge. Oh, it's 11 o'clock. That seems to be an appropriate point to... Oh, atheism. Sorry? No, atheism. Oh, atheism. No, I did atheism yesterday, didn't I? Mm -hmm. (laughs) We can come back to that in the discussion. Um, I'll leave it on that point. Um, And we have this afternoon a final session for uh, questions and so on. And uh, hopefully... And also someone has asked me to be clearer about what I mean in secular Buddhism. I'll try to say a few words about that at the beginning of the discussion. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org